The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, take off your shoes, turn down the blues, and let the cats snooze. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 385 with guests Doug Purdy and Don Box, recorded live Monday, September 29th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who put the stud in Visual Studio, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Thanks, Lawrence. Uh, this is Carl Franklin. Richard will be here in just a minute for the interview. I'm doing uh, the intro in the Speaker's Lounge at DevReach in Bulgaria. There, a few of the usual suspects are here, sort of hanging out and promising to be a little bit quiet anyway. So uh, we will have a, a show coming up in the future from uh, Bulgaria and uh, from Amsterdam and even a little side trip that I uh, took with Senor Huckabee in Poland. So we'll talk to him about that. This show, of course, is all about Oslo, Don Box, and Doug Purdy coming right up. Enough of that. Let's get right into Better Know Framework. So today's class was suggested by my friend Sean Wildermuth, who just happens to be sitting right here beside me. Hi, Sean. How you doing? So when asked, uh, give me a really cool class in WPF that I can highlight on Better Know Framework today, you came up with a dispatcher timer class. So this is uh, essentially a, a, th a thread-safe, UI-safe timer for WPF, right? Yeah, the, if you've been doing .NET for a long time, you know that there's 4,000 or 5,000 different timer classes on the framework. I particularly like this for WPF because it always is guaranteed to call back in the UI thread. You don't have to worry about um, worrying about which thread you're on. It's guaranteed to always come back in the right space. So that, that's a good question. When you're doing events in WPF, do you still have to do any of that asynchronize invoke stuff, or is that sort of handled better? In WPF, most of the events are fired back in the UI thread. There's a couple of vague exceptions, but for the most part, you don't need to worry about it. Um, because everything also derives from, the, um, from the, the base class that the entire framework does, you can always check to see whether they're in the UI thread without having to go on to thread and mine the, on the UI thread stuff that you're normally doing when, when forms. If you're, if you're making components, do you still have to worry about it, though? Do you still have to do that kind of checking or... If you're going to raise your own events, yes, you do. And ordinarily, you know, using the dispatcher to invoke out to the UI thread when you're firing events is normally what you would do. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Cool. And there you have it. Better know framework. So, of course, you know that we're in the middle of the .NET Rocks. Well, actually, towards the end of the .NET Rocks TechEd Europe sweepstakes. This is where you can win an uh, an expense paid trip, a three expense paid trip to Barcelona, November 10th through the 14th where TechEd Europe will be held. Um, I say a three-expense trip because we're going to pay for your airfare, your ticket, and your hotel room. So what you do in the privacy of your hotel room, that is between you and American Express, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, Mark Dunn got a chuckle out of that one. Yeah, he'd say more, but he's off microphone. 
So we have a winner this week. Of course, the question was about Michelle LaRue Bustamante and what does she have to do every three hours to prevent uh, catastrophic discomfort? And the answer was pump milk from her breasts. And you should have seen some of the descriptions <laughs> in the database from the people who entered the things. We had everything from express milk, you know, scientific things like express milk every three hours with little sound effects. Wah, wah, wah. So that was kind of fun. The winner is Brian Schmidt from Freemansburg, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Brian. We'll be sending you a brain bag and good luck in the uh, final drawing, which will be October 21st. Well, I'd like to welcome Doug Purdy and Don Box to the show. Don, back to the show. He's an architect at Microsoft working on declarative languages and tools to simplify developing applications and services. In that role, Don's involved in creating languages, frameworks, and end-to-end experiences to help people translate their intentions and desires for software into a machine-readable and executable form. Don, of course, has a, uh, a big history in the, uh, in the community in software. Uh, he joined Microsoft in 2002 as an architect of the WCF platform, where he worked on software to enable programs to safely and securely interoperate with one another. His responsibilities included both the design and architecture of the runtime stack, as well as interoperability protocols with IBM and other partners. Doug Purdy is a product unit manager at Microsoft, working on next-generation languages and tools to broaden the franchise of people-building applications. Is that people-building applications or people-building applications? It's both. All right. His vision is to, quote, make everyone a programmer, end quote, even if they don't know it. Previously, Doug was the group program manager for the Windows Communications Foundation and Windows Workflow Foundation teams. Douglas has been with Microsoft on and off since 1998, where he has worked in consulting, evangelism, and engineering. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you. On and off. Is there a Microsoft drop-in center? What's a Microsoft drop-in center? Well, I'm just thinking, how do you be on and off with Microsoft? Ah. Oh, yes. No, it's uh, what we call that is when uh, there's this thing called the bubble, uh, and you quit Microsoft, go to a startup, and then you rejoin Microsoft. Ah, okay. Then you come to your senses and return. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, so man. So you guys have been busy, huh? A little bit. And dark, too. Really yes. haven't heard anything about what you're up to. Yeah, it's been, it's been kind of uh, interesting. Um, the, uh, I peeled off Indigo probably in 2004 to start working in this space. Um, and it took a couple of years, uh, for me at least, to really um, get my head around the problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it pretty much meant, uh, you know, uh, th- for the first couple of years, I didn't know enough to say anything. Um, and as I knew more than, you know, the standard Microsoft, you know, we don't talk about stuff, uh, default policy kicked in. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure I, I, I knew what I was talking about before I opened my big mouth. Um, so it's not so bad. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, definitely, you know, the, the era of darkness and silence is almost over. Um, right. and then, you know, really, you know, we've been building stuff. People are going to touch the bits and they're going to tell us a bunch of stuff they like and don't like, and we can have a normal conversation. Um, but I'm definitely looking forward to that phase of this project. So there have been a few stories in the news about Oslo, about, you know, the general idea about what it is. Is there anything beyond what, what's out there that we can talk about at this point? Well, you know, the, the the goal was to make make it, you know, I often talk about the what we're trying to do is optimize the pipe from your brain um, into running bits. Um, and one of the things we're really focused on is making it so you can, um, you know, very efficiently say what you want from software, that you can work in the, the domain terms that are, are in the problem space you care about, um, that you're not forced to put a bunch of, um, you know, noise in with the signal. You know, sometimes we talk about the signal-to-noise ratio of code. Um, and, you know, honestly, even though many of us, you know, have gotten pretty used to reading code, um, what we learn to filter through a bunch of the noise to see the essence. And, you know, that essence, that, that, that noise is there. And, you know, you have to manage it, and it gets dusty and crufty and gets bugs. Um, and so we're, we're looking to, you know, um, you know kind of get a much more optimized uh, 
signal. You know, Charles Simone, um, whether or not you believe in what he's building or not, he has this great saying, which I, I just think is so apt, which is um, we call programmers coders because um, they basically encode things into, um, they're basically encryption agents, right? They take your ideas and turn them into indecipherable uh, stuff. And, you know, there, there's a fair amount of truth to that. The, um, the aspect-oriented programming is a sort of a, this area that is so sort of concerned with taking out the goo from the stuff that you are, are actually concerned about. Does that play any kind of a role in what you guys are doing? Mm, in short, no. Okay. Yeah, we're not doing AOP. This is not... Um, you know, there there certainly was a, a, a you know a decades worth of excitement around people trying to intercept the the method invocation chain, mm. um, and God knows you know Doug and I have both worked on on systems that enabled that. Um, Indigo certainly had its its uh, fair share of those features. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is we're, we're we're really trying to to solve the problem at a more root um, spot in the stack, which is really how you write things down. We're still um, going to be writing code, aren't we? Yeah, you're going to be writing all kinds of things. Yes, you'll continue to write code. Code will be with us forever. The question is, if you look at the evolution of the way software development has worked in general, not just on our platform, although a lot of my analogies come from this platform because it's the one I know best, right? we've been moving the dial more and more towards um, other ways to write things down. Right? If you look at a typical um, you know, web service or a typical... Um, you know, client app. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't, you know, C-sharp code or VB code or C++ code. Um, you know, certainly um, we've moved more and more towards trying to put things in config so we get flexibility. We've moved more and more tried to, towards trying to put things into um, various XML dialects, XAML being the most interesting one um, for this example. Where um, And the reason we do that is we want to be able to get um, different kinds of people involved in the production of software, right? The whole, if you think about the way WPF works, right, one of the benefits of separating out so much of the content into XAML is I can build a different tool set for a different constituency to go work on the app, right? The developer loves Visual Studio, right? They, they have a deep emotional bond with it, and we think that's a great thing. Um, but there's a bunch of folks who wear black turtlenecks um, who don't really want to use Visual Studio and feel more comfortable in other kinds of tools. And the fact that both constituencies can rendezvous on a piece of data, which is the XAML document, you know, that, that's actually a pretty interesting um, uh, benefit of moving to this kind of a model. Okay, so extending your analogy, I've got a bunch of uh, domain specialists, business owners, that uh, definitely have some input into building my application. In fact, a big chunk of my job is translating their mutterings on whiteboards into architecture. Are we building a mechanism to capture that? Well, we certainly are building infrastructure tools and such that can allow that kind of a scenario. Um, but it's not just you know the business analyst um, scenario, which is a, it's a fun one to talk about. There's some much more pragmatic ones that just, if you think about yourself as a developer, you wind up inventing these dialects, these mini languages for doing a variety of the tasks that are involved in either producing the software or running the software. I mean, think about it. MS Build, right? If you're a developer on this platform and you use the Microsoft tool chain, right? I mean, I know there's NAND, but let's just focus on the Microsoft tool chain. You kind of have to know that language, right? You kind of have to know that format, Um and there's a lot of your application is actually specced today in MS Build. And if you look at some of the technologies that are coming out um, at this PDC, right, more and more the, the, there's a lot of the software is actually expressed as um, things that are in the build file. Um, and so we think about all the artifacts that it takes to produce a piece of software. And .cs files are one part of it, but they're, they're not really everything. So... You know, the approach accrues value even if you have a 100% developer culture, right? If developers are just building tools for other developers, right, they wind up using these kinds of techniques even in that kind of a system. The fact that it also accrues values to these, you know, it takes a village to build a piece of software and you have these different constituencies, that's also true. Um, but there's actually a lot of merit in the approach in, independent of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to 
trying to get an idea of the kind of things you guys are doing. I mean, we sort of understand DSLs from other tools that you have done. Um, when it becomes applied to general code, however, you know, the, the complexity has to increase. And uh, just because there's so many things that one can do when one writes code, so many, you know, things from conditional and flow control to logic and, and all of those other things, uh, does that make our toolbox really, really big with lots of things to remember where they are? Or, I mean, I, I hear good things about the the simplicity of Oslo without compromising control. Well, I, I definitely think people will continue to have control. Um, although the ex- the specific example you bring up is pretty interesting. If you look at what we did in .NET 3, we actually took the notions of control flow, conditional execution, and, you know, we built a XAML dialect around it. We built a runtime around it. Um, and we illustrated that it is possible to move even that base kind of core value of code um, into the world of data. Now, th- there's a couple limitations with the way we approached it in, in .NET 3.0. One was um, the, the textual format you had to write your workflows and your, your rules um, was a XAML dialect, which, of course, you know, for some population, they love working in XML, but, and of course I'm in that population, but there's a lot of folks who don't. So the text experience for DubF, you know, we could do better. Um, and of course we had a, a, a really good visual designer for that stuff, but again, um, you know, to interact with this data, it turns out people want to use multiple kinds of tools to, to rendezvous on a common piece of data. Um, and what we found kind of in the arc of doing the Oslo project so far is, um, people want diagrammatic views of things. They want lots of different kinds of visuals. But they also want uh, text, and they actually care deeply about what that text looks like. Um, and so what we're trying to do is address those needs. But, yeah, we think of it even down to the basic, you know, kind of Turing machine level. I'm still trying to get a handle on is this a, a set of tools that's sitting on top of Studio that generate code? Is this a, a new set of .NET classes? Is this a language? New environment, perhaps? Yeah. We're, we're, how are we going to manifest this? Well, there's a language component. There's a tool component. Um, and there are runtimes that attach to this, this system. Oh, yeah. All of the above. <laughs> yes. The answer. Yes, we have a language. That language will be a first-class Visual Studio language with all the accoutrement you would expect from any language that works in Visual Studio. Um, We're building a tool that allows people to walk up to the content that you might produce in this language and get an instant gratification against it. Um, And we're building, you know, honestly, we're building a a database um, which will contain a bunch of this content out of the box. Um, which we expect to, you know, grow that content right. base over time. And of course, you'll be able to build your own into that as well. Yeah. And a, a, and it's, so, a database is more of a, I mean, a collection of information. Or are you actually talking about a, an alternative to SQL Server here? No, it's the former, not the latter. Okay. We love SQL Server. SQL Server is a great piece of technology. Sounds like the way to extend the language is through the database. Is that am I grokking well, this you, right? The, the way you extend the domains you can think about and talk about and use in the tool is absolutely by adding more schemas um, into SQL Server. And the language which we're building uh, makes it much easier to, to extend the schemas of your database. I see. Interesting. Yeah, this sounds like something that needs to be going to need a bunch of tooling, and we're going to have to have a, uh, an ability to sort of draft the picture of what we're trying to build here. This is not a simple thing to jump into. It's not just a DSL. There's a lot more stuff here. Well, actually, if you look at the DSL toolkit we shipped in, I think it was Widby, VS 2005. Yeah. Right? Think about the next things you would want, right? The DSL toolkit did a pretty good job of giving you uh, a visual notation, a diagrammatic surface over data, right? And it also did some other things, but that was the, the key innovation of that tool was it made it very easy to build design surfaces. Um, We want to push that envelope even more. Um, And we also believe text, your text editor is a great design surface as well. Um, So we're trying to really embrace that as um, a complementary way of interacting with the same underlying information. Then, of course, the next thing you ask about is, 
you know, I've got your DSL, I got Carl's DSL, I got Doug's DSL. How do I bring them all together and work with the information that, that results from all of them um, and pull it together? And that's why we're, you know, that's why we have a relational store um, that we um, kind of aggregate to. Um, these general tools like the DSL toolkit and workflow and, and a, a lot of these things that are very extensible and not workflow perhaps, but um, a lot of these things that are very general and very extensible sort of don't have the the structure that a language has where everything is sort of baked in already like Link and C Sharp and, and uh, all, you know, all of these great features. Is, is it so general that it runs the risk of, of people not coming together on standards, or is there enough in the language and in the guts out of the box to be productive right away? Well, I definitely think there's enough in the, in the out-of-the-box language um, to be able to do um, you know, data modeling, to basically be able to write domain models. Um, it's a pretty good language. I've been using it for a while. Other people have been using it for a while. I think it's... Um, you know, it's pretty close to what you'd want to write down to get schema. Mm-hmm. Um, that stated, we you know we also have this textual DSL facility. Um, so if there are things you don't there, if there are things you want to say that aren't naturally represented in the, the core language, the beauty of the system is I can extend or I can write a new language that gives me what I want. Um, and yeah, in that space, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, whether the community just builds, you know, if it's a you know thousand points of light where there's just a plethora of DSLs, versus how fast we can um, follow up with the initial release and build really targeted, focused DSLs for given domains. Right. I mean, I, I, I think it's going to be a combination of them. Right. I mean, I yeah. hope lots of people pick up our tool chain and do all kinds of interesting stuff that we can't even imagine. But I also hope that you know we continue to keep our foot on the gas pedal. Right. Um, and build more and more. Um, value around having, you know, a very focused textual and visual experience for a given kind of domain, whether it be app building or systems management or healthcare, I don't know. Right. Otherwise, you sort of run the risk of everybody doing the Me Too thing, and now all of a sudden when you go to to find your tools out there in the community, there's, you know, thousands of tools. Well, it's kind of like frameworks, right? Yeah. Well, that, that's the point I was going to raise. Like, you're already in that business. I think if anything... <laughs> If anything, what we're trying to do is is actually make a developer's job today much simpler because today what you have is a general purpose programming language, C-sharp, VB, what have you, and then you've got a 1,000 frameworks. Well, it turns out people think that they just have to learn C-sharp, but in actuality, C-sharp doesn't give them much. What they've got to go do and actually to do something interesting, some kind of computation, is to get a framework or a runtime. And so what we're actually trying to do is, can we take the language, can we take the visual artifacts that you interact with, both the textual DSLs and visual DSLs, and actually bind them directly to what the developer's intent is? And this way, they don't have to learn a general purpose thing and a bunch of you know, other point-wise things to layer on top, but rather have the exact syntax that they need and exact gestures that they need in order to accomplish their job. I mean, today, you know, it's sort of like you have a hammer, uh, and everything's a nail. You know, we're actually trying to give you a tool chain that's very specific to your task at hand. So a box of nails. <laughs> <laughs> no, a wrench. A wrench. Yeah, actually, it's a transformer tool. Whatever the. Now, I've always thought of Oslo as almost like .NET four. What's this? Am I wrong there? Is this this the next version of .NET? Well, it depends on what you mean by next version of .NET. Uh, .NET four is a bunch of great features that extend the current development paradigm. Those features are great. Um, so you could be asking that, or you could be asking, is it the, is it the thing that's beyond .NET? Okay. Those, those are two different statements you could be making. So .NET is involved, but that's not all this is. No, I mean, .NET's a core part of the, the value that we think about. I mean, so, you know, you think about Windows and you think about all the, our, our sort of platform. We have lots of different ways that you can develop uh, applications. You can develop content for that platform. And each of those different uh, uh, ways, you know, have a plus, have a minus. And you just, as a developer, you have to take a look at it and say, you know, this is a job that I'm trying to accomplish. This is the tool I'm going to use in order to achieve that. 
Uh, and what we believe is is that we're working on the next set of technologies that's really going to amplify the number of people that can develop for our platform. In addition, it'll give a bunch of tools to existing developers and amplify the kind of apps they can write as well. And so, you know, we're on a very long journey. Don likes to say, you know, we've been doing this for 15 years. And every single release, you know, whether or not you want to call it .NET or you want to call it, uh, you know, the new attribute syntaxes that came out with ATL Server or, you know, all these other things, it's always been about simplifying the way people write, simplifying the way people write applications and, you know, in broadening the franchise of people that actually are able to write apps. And Oslo is just the next step in, in that. And there'll be something after Oslo and there'll be something after that one and there'll be something after that one. Um, just uh, as there always have been, we're on this continuing sort of mission to make it easy to write software. You know, it's funny because I, I've a lot of folks have said that .NET really raised the bar for developers, made it more challenging to write applications. You wrote much more sophisticated applications, but the requirements for being competent at .NET were higher than the old, say, Visual Basic. Such was the way with C and C++, though, too. I mean, once the groundwork was laid and we had a solid foundation now, then all sorts of adornments came afterwards to make it easier. Well, I think if you look at the, you, you sort of look at a bell curve, and you got to ask yourself, you know, where are you at in addressing the the vast majority of developers? Um, you know, certainly, I think that um, the .NET framework took a step forward in moving people into a managed environment that heretofore hadn't been in one. Now, granted, a lot of EB developers had always been in a managed environment, but it really brought it, it did something Microsoft's very good at doing, which we're also we're trying to do with Oslo, which is take some technologies and really make it mainstream, make it a part of a standard enterprise devs toolkit, and you know, make people stand up and care about that particular kind of technology. And we're trying to do the same thing with Oslo in the space. Of, of modeling is, you know, what we term that term, or or DSLs. Make DSLs and modeling a mainstream phenomenon. All right, another direction on this. Where does Oslo fit uh, in the whole concept of cloud computing? So there's a bunch of technology which we'll be discussing in great and gory detail um, in just a few weeks. Um, certainly, if you look around the various technologies, both within Microsoft but more generally, there's certainly a lot of data-driven aspects to the way um, you write and deploy cloud-based software. Um, we think Oslo has some really great um, tooling in that space, um, but but we're not really ready to talk about how those things connect yet. Okay. But obviously, Oslo has some thoughts on cloud. Well, I think it's safe to say that Oslo is applicable to the general uh, notion of writing applications, just how you know C Sharp or any you know other system for writing applications is generally applicable, regardless of the deployment mechanism that you choose. Right. Um, and you know we're just not ready to you know talk much about you know what we're going to do in that space. But safe to say it's on our radar. Good. Yep. And uh, you'll be talking about a PDC, of course. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're publishing all the sessions for PDC, at least the titles, at least. And, they, and the O word shows up every awesome. so often. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we got to save a little bit. I assume you guys are going to be coming to PDC? Oh, we'll be there. Yes. All right, great. No doubt about it. And, and many of our ilk, I suspect. We're all excited to see exactly what you guys are doing. Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing it, too. <laughs> oh, it's got to be nice to come out from the dark and start collecting, <laughs> some, you know, getting more feedback and, yeah. and getting into some new arguments. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, I don't know about the latter of those, but certainly the former. We're, you know, we're very excited about it. The team has been working, you know, unbelievably long and hard to reach this point, And we're very excited to be able, especially to give out bits that people are going to be able to take home, you know, not only PDC, but... Um, we are going to actually ship our bits up on um, the web so any developer can go grab them and give us good feedback about it. So we're really encouraged by that, and we're looking forward to it. That's all, that is any developer with web access. So and, Yes, if you don't have web access, you're in trouble. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app 
that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. So you want to make everyone a programmer, Doug. Have you succeeded? No. A long while. I, you know, I'm, I should say this is sort of morbid, and uh, it's a bit of a joke, but I tell my mother that my goal is to make my mother a programmer, but I've always told her she'll be dead by the time it happens. Oh, nice. nice. That's, that's but, nice. But I'm committed. <laughs> and she's 33 right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, she, you know, it's always been a dream of mine, of course, to, and I've talked about this before when we, when we get our future hats on, to be able to walk up to a machine with a, a business person and sort of have some sort of basic interaction with the machine, a- answering questions the way you would talk to an expert system, I guess, and uh, and have the thing spit out, pachink, some software that then could be pretty much used immediately. So I know that this, that's that's what you're talking about, make every, making everyone a programmer. And, you know, be a programmer is somebody who uses an application with no more expertise in the guts of how computers work than an application user. Yeah, I, I, what I would actually say is I think, for me, the notion is much closer to two sort of emblematic things that I'll point out. The first is Excel. If you look at Excel, that's the closest thing that we have today to the sort of tool chain and toolkit that I believe you know, end users can use to actually you know, build a program. Yeah. And you can see some incredibly complex applications that are based directly inside of Excel. In fact, I can't tell you how many businesses actually, as you may know, run on Excel yeah. um, and how many business users are amazingly productive in that environment as well as just your regular consumers. Right. Uh, and I think a lot about what you'll see at PDC, uh, particularly in our tool space as well as in the runtime space, is encoding a lot of those ideas in a, flat, in a platform way. Um, so I think Excel is an amazing sort of uh, beacon that stands up on a hill of, of sort of what we aspire to get to. It's a very purpose thing, but you can imagine that being a very broad-based platform play with pieces of that throughout the totality of what we're trying to do, and that'll give you sort of an idea of where we see this going you know, out into the future. Uh, the other one that I'll give you, um, and this will certainly strike me, uh, reveal my age, is Smalltalk. Um, you know, Smalltalk was actually targeted at very young children to actually allow them to start programming computers. Uh, in addition, it has sort of this blurring between runtime and design time that Excel, um, you know, accentuates to a great degree, which we think is very, very important. If you think about much of the life cycle that people talk about when they talk about business analysts, the programmer, the tester, et cetera, it largely, one of the core reasons for that is the fact that so much of our systems are, require you to have this hard split between runtime and design time. And a lot of the work that we're doing is actually to blur that line, if not completely eliminate it. And so I think what you see is if you look at Excel, you look at Smalltalk, um, then those are two beacons really that, that, at least for me personally, guide how we're sort of moving this thing. And especially the aspects of Smalltalk, you know, where it's very data-driven, Excel is very data-driven. And those are, you know, we'll eventually get there. But I think, you know, if you look at it, what we're doing with those two applications in mind, then it becomes clear sort of how we think this thing could evolve. It's funny that you pick small talk too, because I, I, I mean, that's another aging thing for me as well. But Excel also gets this too. They've, the set, basic set of rules and the tool was fairly simple, you know, grid of values. Yep. It's the depth of content that the regular person could put into it that's stunning. Oh, that's right. I, I think there's actually there's a truism, and I think you'll see this in our architecture too, is if you can adopt a very simple data model <laughs> and you can adopt a very simple, straightforward, approachable way for encoding things in that data model, it gives you leverage like you would not believe. Well, it, allow, it allows you to let people go off and start creating content yeah. uh, without having to know an awful lot of the infrastructure that makes that content possible. That's exactly right. So, Don looked like he wanted to add something. I'm putting him on the spot now. Sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, look, there were two things I wanted to add. First off, 
I mean, Lisp is another great example of this. You know, very small number of moving parts. Um, you know, makes things pretty fluid. The other thing is, is a lot of it's about latency. You know, when I sit down to work in various mediums, um, you know, different programming languages, different um, tools, um, a lot of it is how much do I have to swap in before I start writing down what I care about? Um, and we're absolutely trying to build a system where um, the, the, decision, the, the amount of uh, conceptual overhead before you start committing things um, is pretty low. Um, yeah, you know, you when I sit down in C Sharp, which is a language I love, I work in it um, almost every day now, um, you know, I have to think about a lot of things. Like, I have to think about, um, you know, classes versus interfaces. Do I use delegates here? Um, you know, the, there's just a lot of uh, knobs, which part of me loves because they give me, you know, a high degree of control over about the way the, the actual program will execute. But on the other hand, they're, they're, they're a, a burden and a tax I have to pay before I get to say the thing I really care about. So you're saying we don't have to worry, make those decisions now, whether to use interfaces or delegates or any of that? Those no, decisions when you work are in C Sharp, you're going to make those decisions. No, 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 but... no. I'm talking about, I'm talking about Oslo. Like, is that is that a problem that Oslo solves? Uh, to the degree you're able to express things as data, yes, it's a pro- thing that Oslo solves. Huh. But again, we're, we code will exist from now to the end of time. Yeah. Well, it's no different than if you think about the code, like C-sharp, let's just think about the tool chain you have today. C-sharp becomes IL, completely different. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on there. Uh, and then IL becomes x86 code. So, I mean, there's lots of different levels here. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the key thing, if I was going to say, um, actually, this may be, I'll walk down this path a little bit. I'm going to try this. This is a new one, Don. <laughs> we'll Uh-oh. see whether or not it works. Um, I, I think what's very interesting, if you look at uh, previous attempts to sort of up-level these things, you, you, you know, you've heard about code spit and all these different things of where, you know, people would try to do uh, reverse engineering, you know, your typical sort of UML tools, et cetera. Uh, and, and where our approach differs primarily is the fact that we're very similar to the way that your current tool chain works. So uh, today you go from C-sharp, compiles down to IL, comp- uh, compiles JIT uh, into x86 code. You'll notice that there's not a two-way translation between those things at all. Right. Mm. Uh, and that's actually an approach that we're taking as well. When we talk about the models being executable, it's very similar to this notion uh, of us, you know, compiling a domain-specific language down to some intermediate representation, and then the execution engines understanding that and executing it directly. And so, what we don't, what we're not doing, you know, we, we often call what we're doing is modeling remixed because we're re- raising the level of abstraction, but we're not doing this two-way sync and merge, et cetera, that you get with typical modeling tools. Um, so if you think about it from that perspective, you can think that, you know, what we're coding up in DSLs is actually code. It just is. Just like C-sharp is the same thing as x86 assembler. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's getting, getting all the way down there anyway. Well, I was going to say, I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But, yeah, our tool chain looks more familiar to a developer than most other modeling stacks I've seen. Yeah, at the end of the day, really, if you understand the way the .NET framework works and you understand the way even the C++ compiler worked, you understand how our system works. So it's, you know, there's a higher level language. It compiles down to some intermediate representation um, and runtimes run off that intermediate representation. It's very straightforward. So this sort of opens the door to, uh, you know, the usual fear that a, that a listener has, that, our, that a regular developer has is, so what is it you're asking me to learn? Like, what am I doing right now or what things can I do right now that are going to help me be ready for Oslo? It's a great question. Um, I'll let Don take a shot. I can take a shot. We're both formulating answers. Yeah, look, I, I think... Um, Getting comfortable with the XAML to C-sharp mix is a good kind of approximation of where we're headed. That is, code doesn't go away, um, but certainly more and more of your app gets expressed as data versus, um, you know, .cs or .vb files. Um, And, you know, I I know a lot of developers look at that stack, you know, kind of the way WPF and WF work, and they think, my God, this is liberating, I'm able to... You know, my code only contains the things I care about expressing in code, and all that other stuff is in this really uh, this other format, which um, I have another tool chain to deal with. Um, 
there's a lot of developers who love that. They'll likely, you know, see Oslo and say, and pattern match and say, oh, that's just like this other thing I like. Here's how it's different. Great. Um, but there are folks who look at that the way WPF works with, with XAML and just say, oh, my God. Um, that's, you know, I, 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 you know, I want it all in my code. I want just more and more and more and more um, imperative statements because that's a medium I'm comfortable with. Um, it's going to be harder for those people to grok what we're doing. Um, and I, my guess is it's the former audience that will be the early adopters of Oslo, not so much the latter. I'll add to that a couple things. One, um, if you're familiar with config and code, yet again, it's the same sort of thing. Like if you look at config, it was looking at things you could parameterize outside of the program. Um, and it's the same thing with XAML. I mean, if you really look at XAML, you know, it could be, you know, I often ask this question, why don't we just use XAML for config? Um, huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, why don't XAML we use XAML just, for config? Well, XML is the the common thing between both of those. XAML is for describing UI elements, isn't it? No, well, XAML is actually a way of encoding CLR objects. It's just a serialization format for CLR objects. Well, in fact, correctly, it is an initialization syntax for CLR objects, which, oh, by the way, that's exactly what config is. Yeah, but the difference is I have to do nothing to take advantage of the XAML stack except write my code against the standard guidelines. To go write my to go write to work with the config system, oh my god, it's one of the most arcane, weird APIs for getting stuff into and out of the config yeah. system. It it's it's not a pleasant it thing. It does whereas, seem a little arbitrary. Yeah, whereas basically if you write a class and it has a default constructor and you have public settable properties, you're XAML compatible. And and let me be very clear, what we're doing is not an XML play. It is the antithesis of the XML play. Yeah, and it's right. actually going to be a uh, – l- let me explain why XML. So if you go look at most of our assets in this particular space, the model-driven space in the Dynamic Framework today, uh, Don and I have highlighted the two main ones. One is XAML, uh, which is for WPF, WF, and, and other things people use XAML for. And the other is config, both of which are XML dialects. Um, what's interesting is is that most, and if you look at most usage of XML in the world, even for messaging, <laughs> it's actually um, people who are building a domain-specific language, and they don't want to um, understand how to build a parser, or they're not language designers. Well, actually, they are language designers. They design a language, but they actually don't do the whole thing. They don't build a parser. <laughs> what they do is they just leverage the XML parser. And what we're trying to do is provide a tool set for folks where they don't have to resort to XML in, in order to be able to do DSLs. And hmm. so, and I'm talking about our specific value for the .NET Framework developers in the sense that, you know, our goal is that you would have a config DSL or you would have, you know, a UI DSL. Uh, and you would use that in addition uh, to whatever code that you would have backing those declarative descriptions. Another one is this. Here's another great example is the uh, ASP.NET page syntax. That's an XML variant. Uh, it's all declarative, and you know, it, you know, why don't we have just a a, um, a declarative markup mechanism that is an XML based for that? Uh, and you can see an existence proof in something like cascading style sheets that's not XML based, but is very very simple. So if you look at the totality of everything that we have in the .NET framework, much of the DSLs, quote-unquote, are XML-based, and we're trying to liberate folks from that, which is sort of ironic based on our um, you know, role as, as the proponents of XML with XML web services. I think we're trying to undo the damage we've done. Speaking yeah, of, I, it, go ahead, Don. Well, you know, I look, I love the XML as much as a man can love a technology. <laughs> um, but i, I got to say, XML is the worst of both worlds, right? XML sits between people and computers, yeah. right? And it purports to be good for both. And, and people argue that it's bad for both. Yeah, people do argue that it's bad for both. And you know what? They're both right, but the, there's a lot of, you know, pe- people do not like writing XML. For whatever reason, you know, it's just the, it's the case. Sure beats um, any files. Yeah, pe- many people have said that. But also, you know, if you look at the state of... Uh, programming against XML, um, it's got a rather checkered past as well. Now you've got this, I mean, it's the, the impedance mismatch between XML and, and most programming languages is well known, um, almost as well known as the impedance mismatch between objects and relational. Um, and so, you know, the, the industry has spent, you know, God knows how many ergs trying to solve the, how do programs interact with XML. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, taking a fresh approach to the problem. Well, when I think about code that has to be written as code just because it's so uh, 
I don't know, tweaky and and low level is is parallel code. So is there anything that we can look forward to in Oslo to simplify parallel computing? Concurrency issues? Well, it's I, you you the opening statement there, Carl, I just got to stop it and go back. You said when you said people want to write code because and then you hesitated. Yeah. Right? Well, they um, have that, to. That, Maybe that's that, the better way to that say. That hesitation is is really really interesting because then when you tried to talk about why, you said, I think the, the word you used was tweaky. Tweaky. Um, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't have TiVo on this, this call, otherwise I'd go back and rewind. No, that's that the word I use, tweaky. He used tweaky. Yeah. Um, and wanting fine-grained control over your, your, the execution of your software doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in code. It doesn't mean it has to be in a traditional programming language. Right? I can, you know, if you think about, I mean, I, in fact, Carl, I got the best example in the world for you. Okay. Go look at the Indigo configuration system. If you want to see tweakiness, yeah. it is it is replete with tweakiness. <laughs> Yet it's not code, right? Yeah. You know, we were able with Indigo, and I'm I'm just stating the way Indigo works um, without trying to um, tell people it's great or bad. But with Indigo, we have this very very tweaky, to use your term, um, configuration system that gives you so many knobs and so much control over how the system works. Yeah, you don't have to write a list stitch of code to go take advantage of that. So I think it's important as we think about, you know, moving to the realm of, you know, software being expressed as data, um, that we don't get confused. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you've gone into, you know, the architectural balloonosphere of abstraction. You could be at a fairly low-level physical uh, direct representation, but still have lots and lots of knobs. And in general, Oslo, you know, we're, we're kind of like an arms dealer here. We're just, you know, making the tools. And whether people choose to build very fine-grained models and systems or very coarse-grained, kind of highly abstract, you know, we believe we're building a, a, a tool chain um, that enables, you know, either of those constituencies to get the, the kind of control they want. So is that a yes? There is some relief for multi-threaded programming? <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm supposed to answer your, the question you were really asking. Um, <laughs> Look, I I don't think in the box right now we have any um, domain models um, specifically for concurrency. The closest we've got um, is we work with one of our sister's teams, which is the the workflow team. They obviously have a number of abstractions for dealing with um, concurrent execution and asynchrony. Um, and we're obviously spending time modeling their world um, using our tool chain. Um, but in Oslo proper, which is really just the tool, the language, and the, the underlying database, um, there's nothing innate in our tool chain about uh, concurrency. Okay. But you can, you can snuggle up to just any kind of .NET API, of course. So you could use the, uh, the, the parallel library, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, again, there's lots of concurrency efforts out there. It, it, it's fairly straightforward to build a domain model on top of a runtime. And really the, the art, which we're learning as we go along, quite honestly, is how much of the, the, the detail of the underlying runtime do you want to surface up through your domain model or your domain-specific language? Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a knob that the, the language and, and modeler, the language designer and the modeler have at their disposal. And I, I don't think there's one right answer. I think, look, ultimately... You know, you think about the consumer. You think about, I want to allow this class of people to do this act. Um, and if you take it from that angle, then that kind of drives a lot of the decisions you make. Um, if you're focused exclusively on, I have this framework and I want to build a domain model in a domain-specific language for it, I don't think you're going to get anywhere near as good an experience as, here's the experience I want to enable for a class of users. Um, but again, you know, we're, you know, we're birthing a platform here, and so we'll find out um, as we go... Um, but it also sounds like you're model. birthing a whole raft of domain models here, too. Can you enumerate them? I know one of them is going to be a config model, but how many more are we talking about? Well, we certainly, you know, if you look historically where we come from, um, you know, we think a lot about kind of the middle tier. Um, again, just historically where we come from is where we have the most domain expertise as a team. So most of the things you can do in a middle tier system, you know, we're we're off modeling, right? And, you know, we've built the models, we've rebuilt the models, we'll probably do another turn of the crank at least once before we're done. Um, 
and you know, each iteration we kind of get a better feel for um, both, you know, what does a user in this world want to see out of the domain models in the language, but also just kind of like what's the meta, right? You know, how do I approach the problem of modeling in a world where I've got, you know, a, a body of users and a target platform, which I'm trying to enable uh, this style of development for? It's, it's been fascinating to watch. And I, I think we'll learn a lot. Of, I, I'm really anxious to get our bits out there so we'll have, you know, thousands of other people helping us figure out the best practices here. So are we really just talking about primarily models that are oriented on given business problems? Or are we talking lower level that? Will there be a data access domain model? Well, there's certainly um, a domain model for web services. Okay. Right. Um, I know we'll have that in the box for V1, right? I know that will ship around the time we ship the, the rest of the platform. Other things, you know, we've, we've definitely taken stabs at them. I don't know what the scheduling is going to be for getting all that stuff out. But it's an interesting possibility. To- but yeah, I, I can absolutely ima- I can absolutely imagine someone building uh, models, um, domain models, and domain languages for doing data access. Right, and there's a raft of them. There's a whole bunch of things we could use here, and I think it's fascinating the idea that then we could also switch them out so that I can go to third party replacements for some of those domain models. You know, and another thing that's been kind of interesting is we find. Um, by having a data rep that captures in a, a more transparent way what the developer wanted, we actually get more flexibility with changing the underlying implementation. Um, and again, it's a matter of how much, you know, what's the implicit contract of, of uh, expectation, right? If, if, I, if when I write down my, my uh, you know, if, I, if I'm working in a domain-specific language um, and I'm saying I'm building a web service, you know, I may be able to work at a level of abstraction that doesn't make commitments to, for example, what my hosting environment is, right? Maybe I want it to be hosted inside of IIS running on-premise. Maybe I want it to be hosted in one of these exotic environments we'll be talking about in a few weeks that run in uh, Microsoft Data Center. Maybe I want them to run in my phone. Again, it's a matter of, um, you know, I can build a DSL that gives me kind of the set of abstractions I want. Um, and I can decide how many commitments I'm making to specific runtimes. But again, that comes with a cost, right? Um, that means I'm going to lose control um, and access to those low-level low pieces, which means I, I need to figure out another outlet for bringing those things in. Sure, and um, especially when you start going down to a really restrictive platform like a mobile platform, there's a lot of functionality there you're going to struggle with uh, if you're trying to completely abstract from that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So there is an aspect here of just sort of framing it broadly enough that you have some flexibility. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of funny. If you look at the C-sharp compiler, right? C-sharp makes some commitments to execution semantics. And I think we're pretty good at maintaining those execution semantics across these various runtimes right. that I've been talking about. Um, and really, the places where you see the variants are the semantics of the user program, you know, the program that's being written and its expectation about things like connectivity, storage, um, security, um, th- those really tend to be the, the things that get you into trouble. Not whether virtual dispatch is going to work the same on my phone as it does in my data center. Turns out we can make that work the same everywhere. Well, definitely UI elements. I mean, there's a lot of pieces here that it's interesting to think about how you could substitute out that way. Oh, agreed. All right, take a couple steps back or, uh, you know, Let's uh, let's sort of recap what also is all about. You know, like I went to a state school here, and I I want to get it all laid down properly, <laughs> dude. I've heard Purdy use that state st- that 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 line so many times. By the way, oh, I, no, I see Forte well. said I had to say it if I was going to talk to Doug. <laughs> oh yeah, oh that's good. Yeah, yeah. Doug and I both went to state school. Doug, where did you go to college? Uh, East Texas. Oh wow. Yeah. There you go. I went to the University of California, which is also a state school. Man knows barbecue, then. Oh, yeah. There's lots of stuff in Texas. (laughs) 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 So anyway, so to pop back, what what did you want us to to, to put in? I want to recap Oslo, what people can expect, and and maybe some idea of what they're going to see at PDC. Doug, do you want to take it? You're giving the lap around Oslo. Uh, Yes, I am giving the lap around Oslo talk. Although Don is actually doing a full-blown keynote. I think Don has three days of keynotes. See, what they're doing right now is saying, you go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. You you understand Microsoft protocol negotiation. (laughs) (laughs) You say it. Go ahead. I'm doing it. I got it, dude. I got the ball. I got the ball. I got the ball. I'm taking it 
it in for the touchdown. So Oslo's very straightforward. You know, I'll tell you what it consists of and what it's useful for. You know, first, as Don said previously, um, it is a, a language, you know, for allowing you to write down models. It's also that same language gives you the ability to build textual DSLs. Uh, it's a tool that can take those models and allow you to create visual DSLs, you know, for that, because we believe visual representations and text representations are equally important. And I think we've seen that across the developer community as well as in our end user community. Uh, in addition, we have this thing called the repository that, in which you put your models in. And these models have a common representation. Uh, and they allow us to share those models across a variety of different runtimes. And we'll be hooking up lots of different runtimes uh, up to that repository. So that'll allow you as a developer and you as an end user to use that tool as well as that language to write applications. Um, and we view Oslo as sort of the next step in our long progression of us increasing the amount of people that can program and how simple we can actually bring application development up. And in terms of what we're going to show at the PDC, I think you're going to see us demonstrate uh, all aspects of that. Where Don has a session on the language. I have a session that I'll be doing that will be covering the totality of what we're doing with Oslo with some examples um, on the kinds of apps you can write, et cetera, and how it adds value to a .NET framework developer today, how it adds value to an ISV today, uh, and how we think about it moving forward into the future. Chris Sells and Martin Gudgeon, my good friends, they'll be doing a session on the repository, uh, as well as you know how you build a model, how you you know leverage General Lang Store that we have available to us. The hottest talk, though, you know, I'm I'm not going to talk about Don's talk. I won't talk about my talk. But the hottest talk people have to go to is Geo's and Chris Anderson's talk on building textual DSLs. I am telling you, if you're a .NET developer and you want to see the next big thing, this is the thing to go see. And, and I got to interject. Yeah. I, by the way, I completely agree. Um, we were just in a meeting where we were talking about yeah. PDC, and I was shocked to hear that the, the, the Chris Ann and Geo talk, which is the textual DSL talk, was not in the top ten. Yeah, it, it does not make sense to me. I've never seen a talk with more geek porn in it than that <laughs> talk. I, I don't know what more we can put in a talk to make it exciting and compelling. And, you know, I just, I, I mean, I, I was very jealous that Chris is the guy who's given the talk and not me with Geo. Huh. We, we showed this to, uh, we, we essentially kind of gave a preview to a group of customers that were up here last week. And, and there were, most of them were .NET developers, and they were just blown away by what we had done. Completely blown away. And in watching internal folks using that part of our tool chain, it's like crack. It's like crack for developers. <laughs> yeah. Highly addictive. Very, it kind of takes over your life. Um, well, now we're getting down to it, man. Now yeah, well, I, the way see, I put it is if you want the power of Anders in your hand, ooh. like if you, really, like if, if, if you've always sort of said, you know, you know, I've always wanted to be a language designer, and I'm not saying you will be Anders good at all. No one is as good as Anders is at designing a language. But certainly if you think about wanting to encode a way for your developers and other users to actually easily express a program or easily express the way that a program should be configured, et cetera, I mean, this is just this is going to be right up your alley. It's sort of earth-shaking, and we think it's really going to – it's the core of what we really offer to .NET developers. Excellent. So come to the se- – if I was going to say any session you should come to, it's building textual DSLs. Skip everything else, but go to that one. Right. Well, guys, I know you got a, a hard cutoff here in about two minutes. Is there anything that you else that you want to just plug real quick? Mm, I don't know. What else? What are you going to do, Don? What are you going to talk about? Uh, look, I, I'm going to be at the PDC. I'm going to be hanging out. Um, I I think the main thing I would plug is if you're at PDC, there's a place on Alvera Street called Cialito Lindo, which has the best taquitos on Oh, Don can't stop talking <laughs> oh, about man. this place. I'd also recommend those of you who uh, are coming in through LAX that you eat at Tito's Tacos in Culver City. Um, Tito'sTacos.com is the website. You know, I lived in L.A. for 39 years of my life, and besides seeing my family, the, the two things I look forward to most when I visit L.A. are those two places. Uh, in what order? Well, I oh, <laughs> Don't ask that question. <laughs> Look, I'm going to hit Tito's as soon as the plane lands. A bunch of us are going to hop in a cab and just hit Tito's on the way out. And then uh, I'll probably, because the Alvaro Street's walking distance from uh, the, the PDC, so we'll go to get taquitos every day probably. Definitely text me if you're headed that way. I'm always oh, up for taquitos. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. Don't get me started. All right. Well, thanks, fellas. Thank you. 
Thank you. We'll see you at the PDC, and we'll talk to you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a